0: Uh, Mark 15, please. And we're going to start at verse 15. And we're going to read up through verse 32. And so last week we read, um, we talked about the exchange that was made. The crowd prompted by the chief priests chose Barabbas, a criminal, and they freed Barabbas so that they would crucify Jesus. Verse 15, so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha which is translated place of the skull. By the way, that's where we get the name Calvary. So we could rightly call ourselves Skull Chapel, but we don't. Um, Verse 23 says, Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes saying, Oh, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. And Father, even reading this, we are humbled. There's no other religion, belief system on the planet based off of the idea that their God was humiliated humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. And so today, we just pray that you would continue to make us ever aware of the fact that our Savior endured this for the joy set before him, us. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. A crossroad, well, that's a term that's used when one road intersects with another road. Example, go out to... Lions Road and Lantana Road, well, there's a crossroad there. Jog and Lake Worth, there's an intersection. There's a crossroad there. And when you give directions, crossroads are very helpful. They're used as good reference points in helping someone understand where they're going. It's good to give the crossroad. Now, sometimes you're just trying to get across the road. In Florida... That can be a challenge. So we have measures in place to help you get across the road. If you've been to Publix, they have a crosswalk. It's usually white or yellow, and it's a place that is designated for pedestrians so that they can safely um, get across the street. And if you weren't living in Florida, it would be a very safe thing to do, uh, to use the crosswalk. But if not a crosswalk, there's another measure. Uh, When you're taking your kids to school, you see the crossing guards. And those guards are out there, and all they have to do is they have to simply put up a hand. And when they put up a hand, you better stop. Somebody's going to get hurt. So you've got the crosswalk, you've got the crossing guard. Uh, you also have these pedestrian lights, these crossing lights, where it's like if you press it, and again, being that we're in Florida, it's not a slam dunk that when that light says "walk," that you should. All right? You need to pay attention. All right? And so we have these crossing crosswalks. We have crossing guards. We have lights to help you cross. Um, but most importantly, when we think of this thing called a crossroad that helps us find reference, we have measures put in place to help us know where we're going. So you've got the crossroad, and then you've got all these other measures to help you get there safely. So to know where you're going and to get there safely, that's the point. Now, when we think of the word crossroad, Many of you think of that moment in your life where an important decision is in front of you, and you have to either go this way or you have to go this way. And so we call it a crossroad. It's a moment of choice where a decision has to be made. It's a school to attend. It's a job to take. It's a job to turn down. It's a relationship to stay in. It's a relationship to walk away from. It's moving from your house. It's staying in your house. You're at a crossroad, and you have a decision to make. Yet there's another definition, if you look up the word crossroad, it is a main center of activity. A main center of activity. And how fitting for us as Christians, we come here and we're looking for direction in our life, a main center of activity for us to consider before any decision is made, before any major decision, is the cross of Jesus Christ. When you come to a crossroad. And so it's a main center of activity because what the cross does, it intersects the things of heaven and earth. Um, what you believe about that cross, as we've said so often in here, it determines how you see the world and what you do about it and how you respond to it. So it's about life's events that you are going through and the choices that you're going to make and how you put those events in perspective. Um, when that cross puts things in perspective, we can have an understanding of where we're supposed to go and how we're supposed to get there. That's what the cross does for us as the Christians. For the cruci- the, the crucifixion, what we're going to take a look at today is Jesus is on his way to the cross. What we're going to see, several characters who, as they are um, participating in this event, uh, their crossroad... Each of them comes to, and it provides a lesson, a teaching moment for us: uh, the good, the bad and the downright ugly. So quickly we'll take a look at a politician who chooses to please a crowd. And in doing so, it's a lesson in priority. Then we're going to take a look at the crowd that chooses to follow their leaders, and that's going to be a lesson in conformity. Then we're going to take a look at soldiers who abuse their position, and that's going to be a lesson. In cruelty and human depravity. Then we're going to take a look at a citizen who chooses obedience. It's going to be a lesson in establishing a legacy. And then we're going to take a look at two criminals that he's crucified between that have to choose between life and death and their choice. Well, their lesson is about eternity. So last week, uh, Anthony, we talked about Pilate. And Pilate is an important. Uh, figure in this story. He's the Roman procurator, he's the governor, and Pilate is baffled. With Jesus in front of him, let's take a look at verse 15. It says, So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, uh, released Barabbas. And that's all we're going to take a look at regarding Pilate. Because all you have to know about him is one thing, and that is that the voice of the crowd became louder than the other voices in his life. If you remember the story of Pontius Pilate, which we talked about last week, uh, then what we understand is that Pontius Pilate, well, his wife was saying, don't touch this man. She had a dream, saying, don't touch Jesus. He himself said he couldn't find any reason to put him to death. And so now what you're going to see is there are two voices that he's going to go against in order to gratify the crowd. He's going to go, and guys, there's a lesson in this for you all. One, he's going to go against his conscience, and two, he's going to go against his wife. Good luck with that. Okay? Those are two voices that you do not want to say, overruled, overruled, and he goes against both of them to make this decision um, to bring Jesus to a cross. The conflict is so great. Why? Because Pilate, for all intents and purposes, being the governor, he's middle management. Do you know what I mean by middle management? Middle management, you've got the people that you answer to that are above you, and then you've got those that you're serving below you. Now, as a nursing supervisor working for a hospital years ago, I was a supervisor, and I had to answer to the higher-ups. And the higher-ups were always like, listen, you need to cut your staffing in order to meet the bottom line. Now, when I did that, I upset the patients. And so there's this catch-22. You couldn't please anybody. And that's what happens when you're trying to please people. When you're living to please people, um, what you find is this, is that you find yourself in a place where... It's frustrating. How many of you have done that? I mean, has anybody in here ever tried so hard to please everybody that you ended up pleasing no one? All right? And so that's most of us. And that's what Pilate does. So it's a lesson in priority and the voices that you make louder, trying to please people. No one has ever succeeded in pleasing everyone. Even when Lazarus died, Mary and Martha had asked Jesus, they said, hey, come heal our brother. Jesus stayed. He waited another couple of days before he went to heal Lazarus. Now think about this for a second. Mary and Martha, who he loved, they're upset with him. But then Jesus says, okay, well, now we're going to go. And now the disciples are like, yeah, but if we go, well, we're going to put ourselves in harm's way. So he can't please his disciples. He can't please Mary and Martha. You can't please anyone. So who are you trying to please, gang? Pilate's in a position to say, listen, okay, if there's not peace in the region, I'm going to lose my job and maybe my head. But then there are the Jews that are saying, you're never going to have peace in this region unless you do what we ask you to, and you put this man that you believe innocent, and you take him to the cross. You see, now he's at a crossroad, because he's trying to please everybody. Again, some of you in this room have done this. All right? If you've ever cooked a meal for the family, all right? If you've got kids. Well, this one doesn't like this dish. And this one doesn't like this dish. All right? And this one doesn't like this dish. So we have to make burgers, but then we're going to make chicken, and then we're going to make ribs, and then we're going to make this, and then we're going to make that. And what happens is this, is that you feel like you, you know, your own kitchen is becoming golden corral. All right? Because you're trying to please everybody. And you can't. In my house growing up, there were two choices. They always put two choices before us. To eat or not to eat? That is the question. All right, so it was about people pleasing. Now, as a pastor, I've been guilty of working so hard sometimes to please people that I can't please God. And I remember reading this years ago about the perfect pastor. The perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. I'm already disqualified by a long shot. (laughs) He condemns sin roundly, but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the church janitor. The perfect pastor makes $40 a week, wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $30 a week to the church. He is 29 years old and has 40 years of experience. Above all, he is handsome. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers, and he spends most of his time with the senior citizens. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his church. He makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office to be handy when needed. The perfect pastor always has time for church council and all of its committees. He never misses the meetings of any church organization and is always busy evangelizing the unchurched. The perfect pastor is always in the next church over. You know So there's the perfect pastor. Uh, if your pastor does not measure up, simply send this notice to six other churches that are tired of their pastor too. Thirteen: then bundle up your pastor, send him to the church at the top of the list. If everyone cooperates in one week, you will receive 1,643 pastors. You get the point. All right? It's like you can't please everyone. All right? The Apostle Paul writes about this in the book of Galatians, and you can turn there if you'd like. It's Galatians 1. Now, this is an interesting case with Paul because in this moment, Paul had been called as kind of like the 13th Apostle. Apostle. The 13th Apostle. He's the odd man out. Okay? He doesn't quite fit in with the rest of the gang. He was chosen way after everybody else was. And here he is in this chapter. He actually gets in Peter's face because Peter's trying to please people. Paul says a point blank in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, For do I now, and this might be a good verse for some of y'all, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. Now, Paul saying this later on in the chapter, what happens is this: is that you've got Peter and Peter has been trying to witness to the Jews, uh, to the Gentiles, and that he's witnessing to the Gentiles. He's eating with them, and he's eating pork with them, and he's eating things he shouldn't be eating. But when the Jewish Christians walk in the room, he freaks out. He gets up, he leaves the Gentile believers, and Paul says, listen, I got up in his grill. I got up in his face. Because that was not a good representation of the gospel. Why? Because for a moment, Peter... Filled with the Holy Spirit, preaching to thousands, already having been in prison for his faith, and taking beatings because of it. Peter was still finding himself at that juncture where he was trying to please people. And if you're trying to please people, you cannot win. That's why when we get to that crossroad of having to choose God or man, what has to be the decision maker is what was done on that cross. Has anybody else done that for you? Has anybody else gone that far for you? Could anybody else ever go that far for you? No. He was the only one that could be offered as a perfect sacrifice. And so the first lesson as we take a look at Pilate was just a lesson simply in priority. But now let's take a look, because if politician gives us a message in priority, well, it says here that the crowd had called for Barabbas. Why? They were disappointed. They heard so much about Jesus. They thought this was their big chance to get away from the Roman government, to end the oppression. Listen, if this guy Jesus, if he can heal people, if he can bring people back from the dead, if he can feed the multitudes with nothing, then they have an army that's unstoppable, basically nobody's going to be able to stop Jesus. But now what's happened is this, is that now they're seeing Jesus beaten in front of them. He's not looking so strong. And the chief priests are going, see, we told you. See, we told you. And so what's happening is is that the crowd is being swayed. And so what they do is they choose a criminal. And for us, it becomes a lesson in conformity. All right? Barabbas, as Anthony talked about last week, was a zealot. He was a religious rebel. A guerrilla. Some would even go so far as to say that he was a terrorist. In Matthew 27, verse 16, it says he was called a notorious prisoner. In Mark fifteen-seven, it echoed. In Luke twenty-three-nineteen, he was, listen to this, because this is going to come into play later in this message. He was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. That's very important. That's going to come into play later in this message. He was in prison with the rebels that were incarcerated for uh, insurrection and murder. And so the crowd, they have made this choice, and it is a lesson for us in conformity. How many of you have ever made a decision just because everybody else made it, and you just kind of went with the flow? So the crowd is being conformed. They're going with the way of the world. The chief priest sees the weakness. The chief priest, in Seeing Jesus beaten like this, standing weakly before the crowd, the chief priest is going to manipulate it and compel the crowd to call for his murder. But the Bible tells us this as Christians, that when we come to a crossword and you have to go the way of the world or to go the way of God, if you have to go the way of the things of the earth or the way of the things of heaven, what should be your determining factor is that cross. Because the Bible says, do not be conformed to this world, but you be transformed by the renewing of your minds. What does that look like? Listen, you are being inundated with false news. I'm not talking CNN. I'm not talking about Fox. I'm not talking MSNBC. Of course, you know, there's false news there. But you're being inundated every single day with false messages from this world about what you should believe and what you should do because of it. And everybody's trying to manipulate. And so the further we get away from this, the further we get away from the truth, the more likely we are to simply be conformed to go along with it. Up until recently, I had a philosophy about driving. You're safe if you go slower than the guy that's in front of you. You're safe if you go slower than the guy that's in front of you. What happens is this, is that we become conformed. Because the world is doing it, we've convinced ourselves as a Christian that it's okay for me to do it. If the world is speaking this way, it's okay for me to speak this way. But listen. Sometimes, as a church, maybe you'll agree, maybe you'll disagree. Sometimes, the church, we're trying to become so much like the world, right? We're losing the ability to speak into what's happening in the world because we're trying so much to be like them. We're told to be in the world, but not of the world. If we become too much like the world in the way that we speak, in the way that we dress, in the way that we act, all right, Pastor John, you're beginning to become legalistic. No, 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 no. Listen. When you're looking at that cross and you remember what Jesus says, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, you do all, you do all for the glory of God. All right. Is the language I'm using, is the thought that I'm thinking, is the show that I'm watching, am I doing it for the glory of God or am I being conformed to this world and am I talking to my, am I talking myself into it and rationalizing the same behavior? Listen, when the Caterpillar dies. It goes into what they call a chrysalis. Some people just think of it as a cocoon, but it's a chrysalis. That's what it's called. And what happens is this, is that that caterpillar, it breaks down into a jumbled bunch of proteins before it's transformed into something brand new. It's, a, it's something science can't even explain. How the caterpillar just breaks apart and how the proteins reform into something that becomes this beautiful butterfly. We're told to be different. We're called to be different. All right? Now, as a pastor, I can make the mistake of just saying, well, you need to be different. You need to change. You need to do this. You need to work harder. That's a problem. You need to do better. You need to not be like the rest of the world. If people are going to be transformed, here's what's going to transform them. Not me chastising you from the pulpit to do better. But refocusing in on when you're at a crossroad is to the decision to be like the world or be like the things of heaven. To understand that the most compelling factor in your life should be the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the way that he loves you now what happens is this. Oh, I want to serve him. I want to go out to access life. I, I want to stay inside. I want to do whatever I can to serve him wherever I can possible. What works better for you? Somebody come in and says, well, you, you know, you're not a good Christian. You're not as good as I am. You don't do this. That doesn't work. It can't work. That's what it was like when they were under the law. And Jesus had a lot to say about that. So we see the crowd, all right, um, and the crowd is a lesson in conformity. So the politician is a lesson in priority. The crowd is a lesson in conformity, but now they start getting nasty. Look at verse 16. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Stop. Just stop. Do you read that and you say, why would he allow them to do that? I mean, it's one thing to volunteer to go to the cross for me, for you. It's one thing to volunteer to go to the cross. But yet it's another thing that he's going to be completely ridiculed. He's going to allow these people to completely ridicule him and mock him. When do you say, you know what, this is enough, they're not worth it? Obviously not yet, because after they twisted the crown of thorns and put it on his head, they began to salute, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 19 says, Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him mockingly. Verse 20, and when they mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. I mean, when do you stop it and say, you know what, enough is enough. There are my rights too, and this isn't fair. You're God. The people that you created are doing this to you. I want to get us to think a little bit, right? Because as you're thinking about this, and as you're rehearsing this, and as this is playing out in your head, what I want you to be thinking is this. He's doing this for me. He's doing this for me. Why? Why would you do it for me? God, I know me. I know exactly what it is I'm capable of. They put his own clothes on, let him out to crucify In verse 21. So they compel, and we'll stop right there, verse 20, just for a second. So the soldiers, they abuse their position. Do people do this today? Oh, I think so. People abuse their position, and so the soldiers abusing their position. This is a lesson for us. This is number three. This is a lesson in depravity how evil human beings can get, how fallen we are. The soldiers had their orders, and that was to beat him, that was to flog him and whatnot, but they, I think you would all agree, went a little bit further than their orders, right? And the picture is sick and sad. And why? What you're seeing is depravity, how fallen human beings can be. Have you ever taken a look at the news and just, just when you think that people can't go any further in their sickness and the way that they uh, damage what God has created in his image? See the story this week of a, a man that killed three women, turned the gun on himself, and they couldn't find the baby, and, and you're just looking at these stories, and it's horrible. It's horrific, and you're saying, well, if God could step in to stop it, why doesn't he? I mean, if God's so good, why doesn't he do something about this? But then what we have to do is we have to look back to the story of the cross and what's happening here, and I would challenge you to start asking a different question when that challenge is posed to you. Because when when they ask you, how could a good God allow this? maybe we could counter and say, well, if he's so bad, how could he go through this himself for us? Maybe that's a better question for us to begin asking. Has God stepped into events in human history and stopped horrible things from happening at times? He has. Does he always do it? No. Why doesn't he always do it? We have a fallen world, and if he doesn't let us see how far mankind, created in his image, fallen, will go. If we don't see how far we'll go, perhaps some people would never turn their heart and say, listen, we need you. This is bad. This is evil. And you're good. We're longing for something different. We're longing for something better. And so the soldiers abuse their position, just as we so often abuse our positions. All right. Citizens abuse their positions. All right. And they end up what? They end up getting uh, arrested or incarcerated. So they abuse their positions, they end up getting incarcerated. People in authority, even police officers, can abuse their positions. Pastors can abuse their positions. Priests can abuse their positions. Politicians can abuse their positions. Celebrities, entertainers can abuse their positions. And what we see are the effects of living in a fallen world. It was King David, man, a man after God's own heart. One spring, he says, you know what? I'm going to chill. You guys go off to war. I'm going to kind of stay back. And he falls into a heinous sin. It's Second Samuel 11. You can read about it. It's the sin with Bathsheba. So it's a lesson in human depravity. But when we consider the depravity prayerfully, when we come to the crossroad, what we consider is this. How grace, See, to have gone through all of that, knowing that mankind was not only capable of the things that they would do, but what they would put him through. What compelled the soldiers to take this man, who they could hardly prove anything, that he was guilty of anything, and to put him through this? And so we look at it, don't you think of that verse that says, you know what, Jesus didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he took on the form of a bondservant, made himself of no reputation, Think of those verses, and when you look at this picture, it puts that in perspective. And then again, you take it personally that He did this for me, for fallen people. There's no sin in this room, even if nobody, even if you have people in this room that you think, you know what? If they knew half of what I did, they would never keep me in this room. And I tell you this, this room. How do I know? Because you're in this else in the world this morning, but you're in here and saying, well, there's still some things that I got to get off my chest, still some things that I've done. The soldiers show us the height of human depravity and the fact that Jesus was not turning, listen, he was not turning back from the cross for them and for you. Now, Verse 21, a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, this is so cool, they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. As he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross, and they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull, and they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him, and the inscription above his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. Stop right there. Let's focus on Simon the Cyrenian for a second. Simon the Cyrenian, we don't know much about him. Here's what you do know. You know what you need to know. You know what the Bible tells us. He's a Cyrenian. He most likely was from a North African region and came into Jerusalem for this time of the Passover. So he believed in the God of Israel, but what he understood about Jesus, we don't know. But here's the thing. It says here in the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says in three out of the four Gospels, it singles him out as a man that was compelled by the soldiers to obey their orders and carry the cross of Christ. Now, this cross in total would have been 300 pounds, the cross in total, but for the part that they had to carry, after a beating the likes of which Jesus took, to try to carry 100 pounds this way to Calvary, up this mountain to Calvary, He wasn't able to do it himself, and so they call on this citizen, and Simon is compelled to carry the cross of Christ. Understand this. Again, we don't know what he understood about Jesus. He didn't wake up that day saying, boy, I sure hope I get to do something that's going to be of great significance for the rest of my life and for all of eternity. He most likely didn't wake up with that aspiration. He was basically just doing what the soldiers told him to do and to carry the cross. But in doing so, here's what happens. Look at the verse now. Look at it really carefully because it says here, verse 21, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. How's that? Wow. Right. Alexander and Rufus. Who are they? And why is it written here and recorded? Here's why. Because they must have been known to the early church. Otherwise, Mark would not have written it. And so what we have here is a link and a lesson about this word. It's called legacy. A legacy. Rufus and Alexander Rufus and Alexander you know you see if you're to look up Rufus and Alexander you'll see that Rufus was a figure in the church he's mentioned in Romans 16 and Alexander is mentioned um Alexander seems to be mentioned in Acts 4 and Acts 19. And while they're not positive that these guys are the same Rufus and Alexander, a great case has been made through the ages to say that these were his sons and these, they were such prominent members of the church that what Simon did on that day was part of establishing his legacy simply because he showed up and he did what they told him to do. And isn't that usually how it works in Scripture? It never has anything to do with somebody saying, oh, I have these great aspirations to do this, 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 and this. Listen, Paul, the apostle, was not sitting in a prison cell writing these letters, and they would say, well, Paul, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just uh, writing the New Testament. What are you doing? Just, you know, writing a little bit of the New Testament that, you know, people are going to be reading for thousands of years. He had no idea. Why was he writing to the church in Corinth? Because he was infuriated with them. All right, he's writing this letter saying, okay, well, the church in Corinth is messing up. I'm going to write this letter. He had no idea at that moment that that letter is going to be circulated from then on through the history of the church uh, and make it into our Bibles here in the year 2020. The point is this. When you come to a crossroad, well, when we're acting in obedience, what happens is this, is that we're establishing something. When you are acting in obedience to God, you're establishing a legacy, and a legacy to be passed on to your Rufus and Alexander, whether you have biological children or spiritual children. And please listen to this, because everybody in this church, if you don't have biological children, you should have spiritual children. You should have people that you're pouring into, that you're being obedient with, that you are discipling, and that you're loving on, so that they can look at you and see Jesus. That's part of your legacy. What are you doing with it? All he does is he gets up and he says, okay, they, they tell him to carry the cross. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to carry the cross. And he's remembered by name in Scripture forevermore because he carried the cross of his son. My friends, the Bible tells us this, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Wow. Wow. What a legacy would be established if we did that. What a legacy would be established if we made the commitment and we had the resolve to say, you know, whatever it means. When I wake up today, I'm taking up my cross. I thought of this quote concerning legacy, and I think we've shared it up here before, Some people say Buddha said it. Some say Margaret Thatcher said it. Some say it's a Chinese proverb. Nobody knows where it came from, so who cares? But let's read it anyway. It says, be careful of your thoughts, for your thoughts become your words. Be careful of your words, for your words become your actions. Be careful of your actions, for your actions become your habits. Be careful of your habits, for your habits become your character. Be careful of your character, for your character becomes your legacy. Your legacy. You can never go wrong if your determination when you come to your crossroad is to say, listen, no matter what, I'm going to celebrate him. I'm going to shine for him. I'm going to resolve to trust and obey him, even if you don't understand the circumstances you're in. Simon had absolutely no way of knowing the significance of what he was doing in that moment. All he was supposed to do in that moment is obey. And for those of you that do not know what comes next in your life, you're being called to do one thing. You're being called to obey where you're at. And you can only obey if you know what his word says. In doing so, you establish a legacy. That's lesson four. Last lesson. Verse 27 is going to take us through verse 32, and it says, With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking him themselves with the scribes said, Oh, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Last part of verse 32 says, Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. So he's crucified between two criminals, to robbers. Now, the word that is used there, robber, most scholars agree that this word is far too mild to describe who he was hanging with. Most scholars agree that because it was the same term used to describe Barabbas, these two criminals, that there was a relationship between them. And I'd never really stopped to think about this. This was something that my wife asked me uh, two mornings ago, and I sat there going, wow, wow, wow. That we're familiar with the exchange of Barabbas so that Jesus could hang on the cross. But Barabbas would have been the third that was a member, and possibly they believed the leader of that same insurrection. So it's for the very fact that Jesus goes to the cross, instead of Barabbas, that the two people on a cross have a choice and they respond to Jesus. Now, this gospel says, uh, even those who were crucified with him reviled him. And you're saying, well, that doesn't make sense, because if I remember the story right, Pastor John, there's one on one side that acknowledges that he is, in fact, uh, the Messiah. Isn't that right? Then why doesn't Mark record it? Well, again, this is why we have four Gospels. It wasn't that Mark got it wrong. It was that Luke expands on the idea. You can turn in your Bibles real quick if you would like to. It's over to the book of Luke, chapter 23. And it's verse 39. And it says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, Rebuke, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed, justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man who has done nothing wrong, Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Stop right there. This is the last lesson. So if we had a lesson in priority, and we had a lesson in conformity, and we had a lesson in in depravity, and we had a lesson in legacy, the last lesson is in eternity. And this is an important one. Because for so long now, the church has focused solely on eternity. Now, this is important. Just stay with me for this, okay? How often have you heard somebody say, you know what, if you were to die today and stand before God, If you were to die today and stand before God, and he would say, why should I let you into heaven? It's a good question to consider. But sometimes when we focus solely on that question, we can miss the implications of our decision to know and follow Jesus. We can reduce it, as we've said so often in the church, to a get out of hell free card rather than a live life to the fullest invite, which is exactly what it is. The gospel is knowing God. Eternity is part of that. But many years ago, what happened in the church, when they started giving mass altar calls, they started making it solely about saying a prayer. And people would say the prayer and say, okay, save myself from hell. But it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. It's a life that he desires for you to have and a freedom that he desires for you to have right now. It's a free from... Freedom from condemnation. It's a freedom from sin. It's a freedom from temptation. And it's a freedom to live for something greater than you ever dreamt of because you're called into serving in a way that has implications for all of eternity. But here, this is the ultimate crossroads that these people are taking. Now, as a hospice nurse, I had the opportunity several times to say a prayer with somebody that was taking their last breaths. And that person would repent of their sins, and they would ask Jesus to be the Lord of their life. I believe in my whole heart, if they were sincere in their request, that they're in heaven right now. Well, but what about this person? They're 80 now. They've been serving faithfully since they were four. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about them. Worry about you and the decision that you are made. And for the people that are sitting there saying, well, you know what? I haven't accepted Christ because I want to get some stuff out of my system. Be careful, friends. Be very, very careful with that decision. There's no way that we can consider the implications of that without thinking about what happened this week. When somebody that seems like they are indestructible passes suddenly, what happens is this, is that we come to a crossroad. We come to a crossroad. We come face to face with what... Let's say it like that. Face to faith with what we believe for all of eternity. When you watched Kobe Bryant play basketball, it looked like the man, just like Michael Jordan, it looked like he could fly. And to hear at 41 years old, just gone. And a 13-year-old, gone. Seven other people on the plane, just gone like that. And what happens is this, is that when we have invested in watching and rooting for someone or rooting against that person, but when we see that happens, it brings us face-to-face with the reality of the fact that we are not indestructible. And so, in our lesson, we see the politician, popularity. The crowd, conformity. Soldier's depravity, Simon' legacy, criminal's eternity. But now consider, when we think of the legacy that we leave behind, right now, we're not concerned so much with the highlight reels and the trophies and the NBA championships. All that matters is one thing. And that is where he stood with Jesus. And that determined his actions and the legacy he established here and in front of God. I don't know what his relationship was like with God. I don't want to even claim to go there because I don't know. But what I do know is this, is that when we see something like that, doesn't it make you think? you stand before him today, we answer for what we did with what he gave us. Husbands, you'll answer for how you treated your wives. Wives, you'll answer for how you treated your husbands. We'll answer for the fathers we were. We'll answer for the employees we were. For the sons and daughters that we were. So every time we open this book, what happens is that we come to a crossroad. For some people opening up the book for the first time they learn about Jesus, you're at a crossroad. You have a decision to make about your now and your eternity. But for the Christian, every time we open this word and we meditate on God's truth, he's calling us to make some adjustments. And we're at a crossroad. Before they died, Confucius said something interesting. He said, I am not the way. Confucius said that. He was not confused about that. Buddha said, seek for truth. Muhammad said, I don't know the purpose of life. Jesus Christ said this, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And you do not have to take your last breath to come to the Father. His desire is a daily relationship in which daily you can go to him and say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We're going to pray and then we're going to um, ask Matthias to come up and play a little bit and then we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper together. Father in heaven, we just thank you again for this time. I pray, Lord, that if anybody is at a crossroad today and if anybody is confused as to where they stand with you, that today it would be that amazing opportunity for them to get off the fence Father, we love you. We love you because of a great act of love that had been shown to us on a cross so many years ago. And as we're about to come to this table, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us during this time. We're so busy speaking sometimes. This is a good time to listen. It's a good time for us to just listen to you. Some are listening now and they're hoping to get a word of encouragement. Some are listening and they're hoping to get a word of wisdom. Some are listening and you're convicting their heart about an area that they need to make some changes. The one thing we know is this, is that For those that are listening, you're always speaking, as long as your word is here. So we thank you, God. In Jesus' name.